Should you ever preach, uh, you'll realize how hard it is to get up after that. Uh, maybe I should pray. Maybe that's a good place to start then. Because good start. Uh, God, we are thankful that you are the rock that doesn't roll, um, that you are unchangeable, unbreakable, um, you cannot be contained, you are God Almighty, and there is no one like you. Um, God, in this time, it's my desire, it's our desire that we would hear from you, that we'd see you uh, perhaps a little bit more clearly than before we walked into this room, uh, that we'd know you a little bit better. Perhaps, God, that we'd be drawn a little bit closer to you, um, fall more in love with you, um, believe in you more strongly, uh, more passionately. Um, God, that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds that would change us in this time. And that it would not be my words, uh, but your words that change. And it would not be my desire, but your desires that are communicated. Um, And so, God, give us attentive ears and attentive spirits that are able to... um, Hear from the living God. Um, we love you, God, and we um, we want to know you better. Um, pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Cor Shimoleski. I'm the pastor of Outreach and Assimilation here at Hope, and I would love to get a cup of coffee with you. If I haven't done so, you've been ripped off. Um, I owe you a cup of coffee. It's my job. If I don't take you out for co- coffee, it's like I haven't worked. And I want the people of Hope to think that I've worked, and so I want to take you out for coffee. So uh, come find me after the service or email me or find me on Facebook. i got a lot of friends on Facebook, and you can be one of them. So um, I've not always been the pastor of Outreach and Assimilation. It didn't uh, start out this gloriously. I was uh, once a caddy at North Oaks Country Club, and... uh, I think I just got tired of the, you know, mediocre golfer that would act surprised when their ball would find its way into the water or the woods. And then they'd take out, you know, their frustration on me with, you know, words of profanity or blowing smoke in my face. And I said, I think I'm done. I think my work here is, is done. I think I'm done with the caddy thing. So I moved on to the uh, much more prolific restaurant business. And I became a dishwasher. And um, restaurants create just a lot of trash and garbage and just junk. I mean, just gross, gross stuff. And it all came to me. You know, it was all like, just put it in the dishwasher. He's kind of the garbage guy and, and cleans the dishes. He's the cleaner. You know, anything custodial, it was like my job. So I was like... Well, this is bogus. I don't want this. So I moved up. I moved up in the world to prep cook. Can you believe this? Prep cook. Making dough, making ice cream, mud pies. It was, it was great. But I didn't stay there. I ended up becoming a dough roller. I actually, made, I actually rolled the dough out for the sandwiches to be made on. Life was good. Things were great. Until I wanted to take a break. Right? Mandatory, right? Every four hours, you should get how many minutes? Fifteen minutes. That was my understanding, but not my boss's understanding. Okay? So I, uh, I come over to my boss, and I'm like, yeah, can, you know, can I get a break here? I've been working a while. You think I could you know, go sit outside for a little bit, you know, get, a, get a pop, and just kind of take it easy for a little bit? 
No. What? <laughs> no, I've worked for like five hours. I mean, I'm, I'm going to take a break. No. Why not? Because you don't smoke. <laughs> what? Like the only people in at this restaurant that were allowed to have a break were the people that were having a smoke break. Like, they needed it. Court, you don't smoke, so apparently you don't need a break. And, and guess what? You don't get a break at all. And I was like, flabbergasted. But that was seriously the kind of unwritten policy Kind of that, you know, just so it's clear, just so we're on the same page, you don't get a break unless you take up smoking. <laughs> and so, literally, if I wanted a break, I would have to pick up smoking. And, and I didn't do that, um, probably thankfully for my parents back there. Uh, I didn't take up the smoking thing in order to have a break, but I was just flabbergasted by the fact that here I wanted to at some, you know, at one level do something that I thought was morally good and and... And physically, you know, from what I understand, it's a, it's a healthy choice. And here I was actually being kind of punished. Like, not allowed to have a break. I couldn't believe it. Well, it, it's kind of funny because we're going we're gonna to see something like that in our text today. Where it's like, you and I, maybe we, we think we're doing something good, morally and ethically. And we, we, we're taking this kind of high road that we might kind of perceive and... And we're going to be mistreated because of that. We're in the middle of a series called uh, Suffering and Glory, Jesus Christ's Procession to the Cross. Uh, we're kind of looking at the last week, the last stages of Jesus' life, and the kind of the whole process of how he gets betrayed and arrested, and he's kind of put on display in front of all these different leaders, and they end up condemning him to death on a cross, crucifixion. And then we'll, we'll take time to look over all that account of how he's crucified and dead. But where we're at, where we've just been last week, Steve uh, kind of took us through kind of a, a pretty famous passage. It's on the vine and the branches. Jesus Christ says, I am the vine. You're branches, okay? The way for branches to stay alive is to stay connected to me. I'm the vine. I give life. Abide in me. Remain in me. Stay in me. If you don't, you're going to be one of those broken branches on the ground that have no more life. I asked, it's kind of funny because that's what Steve talked about. But when I asked him, hey, what did you talk about last week? He just turns to me and he just goes, <laughs> and I was like, what is that? And the people that are laughing were here last week because that was like one of his illustrations is like, all right, you're the branch and you're going to remain in God. And you're going to abide in God, but what is your goal? What are you trying to do? You're just trying to suck all the sap from God. And, and that, was, that was how my senior pastor, my boss, communicated to me <laughs> what he talked about last week. It's like, thanks, I think I'll just go listen to the sermon online. <laughs> but this week, um, the title of today's sermon is, The World Hates You. It's a, it's a special Mother's Day message. <laughs> For all those moms that have come, it's, there's just no way around it. It's a, kind of where we were at in the series, but <laughs> I love you moms, if that's any consolation to you. But uh, yeah, the world, the world hates you. Happy Mother's Day. 
There's extra roses on your way out. We have extras. Grab an extra rose on your way out. Thanks for coming. Um, But let's look at today's passage. It comes from John chapter 15. Um, There's an insert. You can look at the words there. You can look at the words on the overhead, or you can open up a Bible. We're at John chapter 15, verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. Beginning in verse 18, it reads, If the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to his, those who were close to him and had a good relationship with him, who followed him. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Stop right there. So, I mean, from this passage, you can see how I got the title, The World Hates You. I mean, it's in there. It just says, that's how Jesus... Christ starts. He just says, hey, the world's going to hate you. But for us to keep in mind is that the world hated Jesus first. That's an important element of this. The world didn't come just looking for you. It came and it saw Jesus and it hated him first. The world persecuted Jesus first. The world rejected his word first before we were ever on the scene. So it begs the question, who is the world? Or what is the world? You know, who's hating on Jesus here? So what I did in order to try and kind of take a, 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 give us a better understanding of the world is I looked at all the passages in all of John's gospel, did a word search on Bible Gateway and said, all right, if there's the world, I want to know that passage. So there's some 60-some like 60 passages that have world in it. Half of those 60 talk about the world in an uh, earth-type sense, talks about it in like a um, physical realm, like Jesus came to the world, he was in the spiritual realm, one with the Father, and then when he was born, he came into the world. He came to the physical, he made himself a part of the physical realm. That's one idea of the world. Then half, the other half of those passages talked about the world in a different sense uh, than this previous one. And so I looked at those and some characteristics begin to emerge. The world is, is kind of a, a, a type of people who, who believe certain things, who have a certain set of um, ideologies and understandings about God and Christ. And most of the time, um, the world is looked on, um, well, let's, let's just take a look at it. The world in his works, in the works of God, okay? What do we learn about the world? Well, the world was made by God. We get this from chapter 1, verse 10. Are we able to get it all up there? Yep. Just rattling off. If you look up world, these are some of the things that it's going to describe the world. The world was made by God. The world is loved by God. John 3.16. The world was sent God's son Jesus to be saved and not judged. A couple passages there. The world was given living bread, Jesus' body, his flesh, from heaven, from God, that will give life forever. The world was given... Jesus, to have life forever. The world was shown that Jesus loves the Father, as Jesus does everything that the Father commands. The world has been convicted with regards to sin and righteousness and judgment by the Spirit of God. Again, more works. Works that Jesus has done 
on behalf of the world. The world was shown that Jesus was sent by the Father. As we, as followers of Christ, are united, the world will see that Jesus is sent by the Father. And one final one, the world was shown that the Father loves the world. In the same way, in the same way that the Father loves Jesus. That's incredible. That's incredible. But the, the world was shown that the Father loves them just as he does Jesus. Okay? So that's, if you just look at some of the works of God that were done on behalf of the world, that's a list of them from John's account. Okay? Some pretty incredible things that have been done on behalf of the world. Now look at some of the words that Jesus spoke towards the world. Okay? Jesus said, Jesus told the world that sin cannot, that their sin cannot be taken away. Because they haven't accepted him. They haven't believed in him. The world was told that Jesus is their light so that they will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He comes and he says, world, here I am. Follow me. I am the light of life. Don't walk in darkness anymore. I'm telling you this. The world was told that unless they believe in Jesus, they will die in their sins. Reference there. And another one. Uh, The world was told by Jesus that he has heard from the Father. The words that he shares are from the Father. I've heard from him. I'm telling you what God the Father wants you to hear. Okay? So look at all those works, all those words that were shared with the world. What is the result? What is their response to Jesus' works and his words? Number one, they don't know God. A couple passages, 1.10 and 17.25 highlight that. The world, as a result and a response to his works and his words, they hate him. They hate Jesus because he testifies that their works are evil. The world hates disciples, followers of Jesus. The world hates them. The world is unable to receive, see, or know the Spirit. Unable to see, receive, or know the Spirit of God. The world rejoiced at Jesus' death. The world faces judgment. The world has been overcome, beaten, and defeated by Jesus Christ. Just pulling these right out of references from John's Gospel. The world was not prayed for by Jesus. And the world does not, are not included. The world is not included in who Jesus sees as his followers, as his disciples, as those who love him. The world's not included in that. Different group of people. So it's in this sense that the world hates Jesus. They see his works. They hear his words, and they end up not knowing him, not giving a rip about him, hating, rejoicing at his death. Those are details of the hatred for God that the world has. People of the world belong to the world, and their actions are shaped by the world standards and not God. Not God. They look at him. They look at his words and his works, and they mock him, and they curse. They say, that guy's crazy. This is nuts. God so loved the world, and the world did not love him back. But just so we're clear, just so we're all on the same page, just so I don't come off as kind of an arrogant, um, judgmental jerk of a pastor, we were all in this situation. I was in the world, okay? You were in the world at one point, at one time. If I can take you to Ephesians 2 here, it says, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Every one of us at one time have been in that boat, have been identified as the world, according to Scripture. We were the ones that hated God. We were the ones who looked at his words and his works and just said, forget it, that guy's a nutbag. Who needs him? And you don't know him and you don't care about him and you rejoice at his death. I was among that group. You were among that group. The good news is verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The way to get out of the world is through the grace of God, through the mercy of God. He's rich in mercy. He offers it to us as a gift and says, you want to get out of that world? You want to get out of that group of people? You can, through my gift of Jesus. And as that happens, as you make that decision to jump from the world into becoming a follower of Christ, boom, the world hates you. As you make that decision, that's one of the things, one of the implications is that the world is going to hate you. All right, so we've looked at the world. We've taken time to kind of look at the world. Now, why? Why is it that the world hates you? Why can't these two be compatible? Uh, I'll give you three possible reasons in your kind of insert for this morning up on the screen. And it's just, the, it's just straight out of the verses that are in our passage today. Number one, if you were of the world, okay, if you stayed in the world, the world would love you as its own. Okay? What happened? Well, if you're not of the world, it's because Jesus chose you out of the world. So, hypothetically, one of the reasons that the world hates you is it's, it's Jesus' fault. Because he chose you out of the world to be on his side and not the world's side. So you could blame Jesus. I'm just saying it's an option. Okay? Number two, why does the world hate you? Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This one essentially points the finger at you. If you're just greater than Jesus, you might have a way out of this. But you're a servant to the master, and if they hated him, and they did hate him, you're going to be hated. So you could point the finger at yourself, that it's your fault. Number three, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So it could be the world's fault. They just didn't know him who sent them. So the fault really could lie in a number of areas of why you're hated. But ultimately it comes back to the world's over here and they don't identify. They don't connect with. They don't relate to Jesus. And so you're going to choose who you're going to relate to. And in doing that, um, you're, going to, you're going to be hated by the world as you side with Christ. Now the question becomes, as I, how? How does the world hate? What does this look like? I brought this passage before my small group this past week, and we kind of wondered together about this hatred that the world has for followers of Christ, for believers. What, what does that look like? And what I would argue is that the, the way that Christians in America experience hatred can be different than how the rest of the world 
experiences hatred. I shared a story a couple weeks ago about um, some, some friends of ours, some believers and some brothers of ours in Turkey who were killed, tortured and killed because they were followers of Christ. That is hatred. That is brutality. Um, there's nothing civil about that. It is barbaric. It is archaic. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, it's jaw-dropping. That is hatred. Um, there, there are places in the world where to become a follower of Christ, you're excommunicated from your family. There's places where if you turn to Christ, you'll lose your job. You'll have your house burned down. You will lose your ability to worship freely and publicly without possible retribution of imprisonment or beating. And there is the possibility, even likelihood in some places, that you'll be killed. That is the hatred from the world that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ experience. Here, not so much. Not so much that kind of hatred. Does it exist? I would say yes. My argument is that hatred of you and me and God in Christ exists. How? What does it look like? Perhaps you've experienced apathy or indifference, but what does hatred look like in the States? And one of the questions that came up in our small group, if I'm not experiencing hatred like people around the world, am I not really a follower of Christ? Am I not attached to Christ? I want to answer that question of, are you being hated by asking another question? I want, the question I want to pose is, is there racism in America today? I believe the answer is yes. Um, is it the same type of racism that, ex, that happened 50 years ago? No. No. Um, 50 years ago, racism towards African Americans was blatant, visible, it was obvious, separate schools, separate seating areas on the bus, separate drinking phones. Racism was seen in police brutality, imprisonments, assassinations. We see racism in that realm much less frequently than we did. The racism that exists today has really built its way into the framework, just worked its way into the culture. It permeates companies and ideologies and belief systems. As uh, one author I got a hold of wrote, um, once it becomes part of the culture, culture, institutional racism is very difficult to root out and reproduces itself automatically. Racism becomes normal. I would argue for that's how much of racism is experienced today, through institutions, through ideologies and belief systems that are set up in order to keep uh, one population down. And it's in that light that I would argue for how you and I are going to experience hatred in the U.S. Hatred for God has worked itself into ideologies and belief systems and structures and institutions, workplaces, entertainment. It's much more civil. It's not barbaric. You almost miss it because we become so a part of our own culture. We don't even, sometimes we miss it. We're not even aware of it. I want to ask you a couple questions to see if you've experienced any of these, any of this hatred towards God. Have you ever been at work and hesitated to inject Jesus' words or Jesus' actions or Jesus' teachings 
into a conversation because you understand that there are potential consequences to doing so. Have you ever had, have you ever had a hesitation? You're in a conversation with a coworker, something comes up, and you want to. You know it's what they maybe could really use right now. It's a word from the Bible, a word about God, a word about Christ, and you have a hesitation in your heart. Why? I don't have that in my job. Right? I don't have that here. I have no fear of that. Why is your workplace different? My guess is because there's at its, at its core level, in its heart of hearts, it doesn't have at its, a desire to love God, to love Christ and to make Christ known. That's why you're hesitant. And there are potential consequences, implications for you doing so. At some level, I'm arguing that that is hatred for God. Another one. Have you ever been, invi- been invited to believe that if you just had a better wardrobe, car, education, house, front porch, I guess maybe that one's just me, uh, then life would be better? Have you be- ever been tempted to believe that? Been invited to believe that? In what you see in culture, in entertainment, online? That's not, that, that doesn't find its origin in the teachings of Christ. That kind of belief, that ideology, that if you just get the right girlfriend, you got the wrong girlfriend, that's the problem. You're not the problem, it's your girlfriend. If you've ever been taught that, that, that doesn't have its origin in the teaching of Christ. That's, that belief is hatred towards God and Christ. It's materialism. Number three, have you ever been tempted to think, I don't need God? I can do it alone. I don't need prayer. I'm smart enough on my own. I'm an adult. I'm fully capable. Ever thought that? Ever been tempted? Ever been told that at your work, in your family, in your set of friends, on TV, in media? I'd argue that that, at some level, is hatred towards God. Deals with pride. If you've ever been mocked, ridiculed, belittled, isolated, betrayed, threatened or interrogated because of your belief in Christ. If you've ever experienced any of that, that's an element of what Christ is talking about here. Realize that if you identify yourself with Christ, you will be hated in some form or fashion by all those who don't identify with Christ, don't relate with Christ. Let's continue on in verse 22. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Here we see again Jesus referring to his words and his works. Saying, I came and I spoke to them. I came and I did stuff that they could see. And the result is unbelief, hatred. Do you guys sense the tension in these verses? I kind of read these the first time through and I said, is that saying what I think it's saying? That if Jesus Christ had not come, these people 
essentially wouldn't be guilty of sin? Is that what this is saying? Do you guys see the tension in, in those words of Christ? Had some time to talk with uh, Chris, who's preaching on the same passage down at Hiawatha, and consult some commentators. And uh, what we understand this to mean is that here, here are these people who have seen and heard from Christ, God, the fullest expression, the fullest revelation that God could give them. And they said, no. Forget it. We don't want them. We don't care. And Jesus is saying, what else can I do? There's nothing left to share. There's no other miracles to be done. I came to meet you, tell you who I am, invite you to become children of God. And he said, get lost. It's in that vain that we kind of understand these words. Their rejection of Jesus resulted in the most serious of sins, the rejection of the fullest revelation of God. And Jesus says, that's it. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else I can give you, show you, say to you. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Get this. He just kind of breaks off in this long discourse about how the world is going to hate him. And then Jesus, in the same conversation, the same paragraph, says, all right, now I want you all to go out in the world and tell people about me. It's like, there's got to be something easier, Jesus. There's got to be something better I can do, you know? I'll be a dishwasher. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it for the glory of God. And he's saying, no, I want you to go out and I want you to tell other people about me. And as I worked this through with a small group, um, it became clear to me the importance of the Holy Spirit in all this. I tend to gravitate towards those kind of verses that it's like, all right, what am I going to do? What does God want for me, for me to do? You know, kind of, I'll work it out here. I'm, you know, I can work hard at something. Um, But as I meditated on this, I thought about this, I thought about bringing it to you guys. The Holy Spirit is essential, vital, non-negotiable. If He is not present, as you try and talk to other people about God, you got no shot. You got no shot. The Holy Spirit has been a part of every conversion in the history. I haven't. (laughs) I haven't been there for everyone, but the Holy Spirit has been present, convicting and empowering and enlightening and showing people their sin and helping them to understand Jesus. He is essential. If, if, if you're talking to somebody and you're trying to tell them about Christ and they're just not getting it, it's just like deer in the headlight, look, they need the Spirit of God to move in their lives. Spiritual truths about God and Christ are discerned spiritually. And I want to read a passage that, that talks about this. 1 Corinthians 2, it says... Paul's saying, hey, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of the age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, 
No ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But catch this. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among man knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Sounds a little bit like the world being described in John's chapter 15. We, ultimately, we need to rely on the Spirit to communicate and convince and show the world how good God is. The fact that you may be sitting here right now and realize how great God is, proof of the Spirit working in your life. Praise God that the Spirit worked in your life in such a way to open your eyes to see, open your ears to hear how good God is. Cor, why are you telling all this? I want to point you to John um, 16. Is that the next one on there? Yeah, John 16, verses 1 to 4. Jesus just makes it clear why he's telling us all this. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. A similar deal in Hebrews chapter 12. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. couple ideas there. To warn you to keep from falling away and to keep you from growing weary or faint-hearted. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I experienced some of that weariness, that faint-heartedness this past week of... Uh, family stuff and work stuff and getting this porch, you're working on this porch. It's like, I'm just, one, I'm just physically weary. And when that happens, like, spiritual weariness is close behind. Whenever I feel that happen where I'm just physically tired, man, it's not long before I get spiritually tired. And I don't know where you are at this morning, but if you're experiencing any of that, any of that faint hardness, any of that weariness, um, I just want you to be encouraged. As these passages say, consider him. Consider Christ. A um, couple questions. Are there areas where you're experiencing hatred as a result of your relationship with God? Along the lines that we talked about, maybe not the barbaric, the obvious, the very visible, but are there areas where you might be hesitant to bring up the name of Christ? Might worry about how this will impact relationships or job situation. And in those same areas, are you persevering through Christ? My hope for us at Hope is that as we see God's works and we hear God's words, our result will look way different than the world. Way different. Will you pray with me?
God, I realize that this morning um, we all come into this place older and younger in different life situations. Some of us working, some of us in school, and we're all so different. Our church backgrounds are different. How we learned about you is different. What we're going to do this afternoon is different. There's so many things that are different. But God, we all have the same opportunity to hear your word, to see your works as they're revealed in the Bible, and to respond. God, we need your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts so that we can discern spiritually what you want us to hear this morning. God, I trust you're faithful to communicate what you desire. I rely right now on you to communicate anything that I may have missed, anything that I was unspoken, but that you want, that you intended to communicate to this people. I trust that you're faithful to your children to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.